0: So welcome back to the third episode of this podcast series, and it's absolutely fantastic to have uh, the full crowd today of Marion, Christine, Randy, and Ryan rejoining us uh, from uh, the Milestone Group, RBC, and Citysoft, respectively. Today we're going to keep on drilling through the results of our Asset Owner Transformation Survey, where the first episode we looked at the whole thresholds question around the current operating model that asset owners have today, the limitations of spreadsheets, you know where the thresholds are, um, considerations around auditability, maturity, simplification, so on and so forth. In the second episode, we talked a lot about then the pressures that are impacting onto that um, operating model, the, the macro pressures that asset owners are facing today. And we touched on this this kind of existential question of what is an asset owner there for today? Is it to be an investment management shop or is it to be a plan manager? And as a result, you know what that means in terms of risk management, treatment of ESG and so on and so forth. And particularly for me, one of the quotes that stood out was just how are these asset owners investing in the companies that they want to be leading the world in 30 years' time on how you actually turn that into an operating process. So today really follows that continuum from operating model to pressures to really how things are turning into action today. So we're going to go through how asset owners are taking a new approach to problem fixing, looking at the trade-offs they're having to make along the way, and ultimately the role of people and technology in that. So to kick us off, one of the interesting or standout pieces of the research was that if you look at all of the kind of key considerations that asset owners have in designing their transformation projects today, it's not about cost. It's not actually even about regulatory pressure. It's about operational agility. Now, that's a theme that we can expand on, but operational agility and risk management were the two leading criteria for basically for project design, pointing to the fact that actually that the change going on in the industry at the moment, it's not about cost efficiency, it's really about building in scale in order to help manage risk. So to kick us off, perhaps starting with Australia first, what's your take in terms of whether that resonates and how do you find, Marion, how do you find that asset owners are kind of setting their agendas today with operational agility in mind?
1: Great question, Barney. I think really the Australian market you know being largely a DC market has always tried to be operationally agile and what i really mean by that is you know really try to deliver the best outcomes and returns for members whilst minimizing risk and and cost i think in terms of the current agenda what's really driving that is obviously they are consolidating we've discussed that they're rationalizing there are a number of regulatory pressures around making sure you're doing things in the member's best interests. And they're also, so I guess they're being nudged by regulatory reform and really starting to think about what the future looks like and setting their agendas accordingly. And I think what's front and centre is really looking at their scale, how they can use their scale and to be able to deliver returns in a very, I guess, risk-controlled way. So, I think what we're really seeing is sort of a split in this market, we're seeing the rise of the mega funds. And I would say there's probably about 10 of them right now, or emerging to be about 10 of them. Lots of consolidation both in the non-for-profit segment as well as in, I would say, with the for-profit or retail segment. And that's really driven by the need to, you have to be large, you have to have scale to to be able to invest in your operational platform, your people, your processes, your technology, to be able to deliver a better outcome for members. So I think really that's what's really driving this market, I would say, in terms of setting the agenda. And I would say insourcing or the appointments of professional investment professionals, CIOs, investment teams, where they're setting that agenda that's being obviously handed down from the board and the management team, we're really seeing a sharp focus on, well, in order to deliver those types of returns, I need to have a sound front, middle and back office. I need to have partners that can actually help deliver on those those returns and those objectives uh, for members.
0: Yeah, and that people point, I think, is a really interesting one to come on to. Just, Brian, from your perspective in Canada, what's your take in terms of how this operational agility kind of concept is actually materializing and, and what it looks like?
2: I think for us, we've seen a few clients and it really the agenda really depends on where they are in their current sort of life cycle and the evolution of their you know, technology. There are some that have really bold strategic ideas and are hiring consultants to come in and essentially map out the current state and deliver a future state recommendation and then they'll you know sort of set action items and plans on how to get from the current state to the future state to be able to deliver on the new portfolio which you know, can include more private assets and so on. That's one sort of bucket. And then we have other clients who are more evolved. They've been at it for longer. They have more institutional knowledge, particularly around sort of middle office functionality. So they're tweaking in certain places to just get a little bit more scale out of it. So we're finding it's largely dependent on where they are in their own journey. And it, and it varies. And uh, and the good thing is, like we've touched on before, there are different technologies that are out there that are emerging that can meet the different needs of the clients.
0: Yeah, absolutely, yeah. And, I mean, it's, it's a really fascinating point, you know, that we talked before about the kind of stages of maturity across the different markets, to your point. And, Randy, we were saying, you know, that – just given that the U.S. market you know, has it arguably reached scale at a large, no, or a large number of funds have reached scale already. Do you find that that's, that's playing out? I mean, how do the large-scale players treat the agility question?
3: I think they are mature and, and sort of at a stage where we think sometimes in terms of second and third-time home homebuyers. They've, they've been through the technology cycle more than once. And I think part of the cycle that we're going through now – is to move from an environment where we may have had a best of breed type of situation and then you're assembling sort of a a holistic solution from various components and moving towards at least fewer components so that things are more inherently integrated. So that provides agility from an investment operations perspective so that you become agile because there are fewer interconnected pieces from just a purely day-to-day operating perspective, should make things simpler and more secure, but also they, the step up, the advancement in in the technology and the operations allows them to be more agile as an investment manager as well. So the one of the challenges is when you see a new opportunity in the market, a, a new asset class or evolving asset class, to be able to add that to the portfolio sort of quickly and easily without losing any uh, agility or ability to, to be, responsive to the market even in the context of
0: putting new things into the portfolio yeah that's very much consistent with i suppose my take on on kind of how agility manifests is ultimately exactly that point something lands in the new in the portfolio and you've got to be able to deal with it quickly and easily in some shape or form and that There's a desire, if I understand right, for a lot of asset owners to stop just fixing problems as they come, and largely as the front office creates them, and actually try to get ahead of that. Christine, one of the things that was really striking in the research was that 80% of change projects historically have been driven by front office kind of behavior. So very much, as Randy says, something lands in the portfolio because the PM basically thinks it should be there, and then the rest of the organization had to deal with it but you're seeing now a huge upsurge in the number of organizations that are actually taking an enterprise approach to their change and their planning. So 62% of projects now being driven on a kind of enterprise scale. Are you seeing that shift happening across your clients?
4: Yes, absolutely. I think what's really interesting is at the heart of all, all of this is data. And so who would have heard the term 15 years ago, a data scientist the whole concept of data being at the heart of the organization. And so I think when you think about the statistics you just quoted, Barney, the the reality is everybody is trying to get a a better understanding of their data. They're trying to be able to leverage their data. Their data is, is their product ultimately. And so I do believe that that's why a lot of it is coming down from the enterprise perspective because everybody wants to better understand their information and their data. And so that to me is where a lot of the agility is gonna be coming from, because once you have control and, and have clear clear view and understanding of your data, I think that that's why we're seeing these types of changes and really what they're focused on. And that resonates, we, I know we're gonna talk about ESG, but all of these things require heavy duty data to be able to make investment decisions. So, you know, if you don't get that story straight, then it's really tough because then you go back to a siloed environment, which is what we've historically seen in a lot of places where, you know, different portfolio managers in different segments, you know, whether it's fixed income, stable, whatever it is, they're going to be creating their own data. That's very inefficient. So I think everybody's looking for efficiencies. And to your point, you know, front office in the Canadian market, the most of the plans have very, are very advanced in terms of their investment philosophies, irrespective of size. They're all looking to alternatives. They're looking to different asset classes to be able to grow their business and grow their assets and also diversify. Right? I mean, there's only so much you know. There's only so much they can get into. Certainly with certain policies. So they have to be they have to be very innovative in their approach. So again, to me, that comes back to data, right? Being able to have that right information and have the ability and agility to be able to make those types of decisions.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you know, that squares as well with two of the biggest themes in terms of uh, you know, inputs into people's decision making now, as exactly as you said, is the is the broadened scope of the investment portfolio and the new assets, whether it be new markets or new new asset classes, but also mm-hmm. the whole question about investment governance and oversight, which ultimately two of them distill down to to a data question, as you rightly said. Quick question though, I suppose just going back to the to Ryan to your point about the future state thinking. I mean, and then also Marion as well, to to think about how the root causes of this are kind of playing out. Because are people focusing on data now because it's the right strategic thing, or are they doing it because they've just had a rather unpleasant conversation with their regulator and suddenly they need to actually get on and do something illico presto because they've got no choice other they'll be forced to consolidate? Ryan, what first of all on the future state, how much do you find it's part of that kind of big picture and how much of it is is tactical, do you think?
2: I think the, the clients that I uh, have spoken to, it is more about the big picture. You know, and, and again, you know, not to sort of belabor the point, but we talk about the macroeconomic forces that are happening, and I think the senior leadership within these organizations are having to consider the journey that the organization is going to go down so they are uh, taking that bigger more holistic view and say you know what do we want to be as we grow up because again esg is evolving they understand these things are coming into play which is another reason why you know to what christine mentioned earlier it ends up being a lot more sort of enterprise driven and clearly the stats in the survey show that as well so that's been our experience with our clients
0: And Marion, what do you think in terms of uh, what you're seeing from an Australian perspective? I mean, is it still kind of strategically driven or do you think there's a, a tactical element given the regulatory landscape?
1: I think there's a bit of both. I definitely think there's more of a push to strategically drive change through the funds. And I think really now what the funds are looking at is, you know, aligning strategy with culture. Historically, the culture probably has been a little bit sleepy and the types of, You know, it was acceptable to have manual processes and shifting data around, you know, manually and looking at a position or maybe an over-reliance on third parties. And I think what we're definitely seeing now is the desire to own the technology, have people with the requisite skills who can transform their business and to really operate like professional businesses and that really is happening from the top down They're really the boards making those decisions appointing executives who have that who are seasoned who have the that experience and are really starting to want to tap into their economies of scale I mean make note, that's You know, they are large enough. They are large enough to tap into their economies of scale, to start to access cloud and, as Christine said, data, to become a lot more efficient and responsive, not only in managing their assets, but also the member experience. So, deploying technology around that investor experience from when the investor first joins to, you know, the investor has a query or has a rollover to another fund. They are deploying that technology and change and mindset across their entire... Organization. So, so many of them, I agree with Ryan and Christine here, have had consultants come in, they've had experts come in, they've had a changing of the guard, definitely. And we've seen a lot of new CTOs, CIOs come in, and also heads of transformation being appointed into these funds with a I guess a mandate to change and to transform uh, their businesses at the enterprise level. That's relatively new for this market, which I think probably if I look back, you know, five to ten years was probably unheard of you know for these types of funds to be managing their own data have their own technology it is still look through though of the lens of members best interest is the money I'm going to spend now in the interest of the members what am I actually going to deliver so there's a real focus on return on investment and that return to to members at the end of the day so there's a lot of scrutiny as well around the costs associated around transforming their businesses as well
0: yeah absolutely and so largely we're saying i think that operational agility is mostly part of the future state planning and that it's kind of it's driven by that kind of as you said you know a lot of thinking done in the last few years a lot of reorganisations new new blood all this kind of thing and ultimately it's now playing out in the new guard if you like but what does it mean in terms of what works not getting done because we talked about yes we want to build more operational agility we want to build in you know we want to focus on data but what are we not doing because To your point, Marion, you know, people you know in in there's only so much money to go around and all of it has to deliver back you know value to the to the end policyholder. Christine what's your take in terms of just the trade off because ultimately we you know in the research we've seen kind of a big trade off between 60 70% of asset owners looking at investing in projects around ESG investment governance that kind of stuff oversight mandate compliance and only 10% looking at asset servicing reconciliations and the good old operational efficiency areas that you and you we all-known love does that resonate in terms of that there is some kind of trade-off playing there
4: yeah I think so I do believe that the sort of the I'll call it the bricks and mortar of the things you just described a lot of that has already been in place so I think they're feeling confident or comfortable but I do think that it's not necessarily some of those aspects aren't necessarily keeping up with the change and you know, as you introduce new asset classes, there's complexity with regards to you know just doing straightforward reconciliation. There is obviously, depending on the size and Ryan will be able to comment on this as well from a service provider perspective, depending on the size of the plan, they will outsource a lot of that because that gives them the ability and the opportunity to really look at the investment side of their business, look at the data side of their business, really look at themselves from an enterprise perspective and taking that off the table and really passing that on, on to a service provider. And I think as well, technology changed, has changed dramatically over the, the years. And I'm sure Randy and um, Marion can comment on that, given you know the technologies that they provide to their clients. But it's really made a big change so that I think that it allows for these plans to be able to focus on the things that they believe will bring value. I don't think that they've lost sight, quite the contrary, but I think they're shifting. It's still a priority, but they're putting a dependency on technology and or service providers or both to be able to help them so that they don't have to worry about the basics of every day. That's what I see. That's certainly from my perspective. I don't know if that resonates Mm -hmm. with you.
2: Oh, no, I just wanted to provide a quick anecdote because I had that situation actually two weeks ago where an organization has a new, you know, head of operations and the person went to their team and they're going through a transformation and they went to their team and said, why are you doing this? You're... Provider, our provider can do this. We shouldn't be doing this. And then we get the call and say, hey, you should be doing this for us. And so you know, I think Christine's spot on it's it's less about sort of trade-offs and then becoming a lot more nuanced in who does what and where and who's gonna add value where along the chain of the investment process. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I
1: would yeah. add to that that many of the funds definitely through our experience. Don't know that there is technology that solves certain problems. And I think they're only just starting to scratch the surface around what type of tech is there that can unlock data, that can unlock automation and provide them with that operational agility as they manage those products. And really, that's what they do they wrap up products for us as we retire, right? So I think there's a discovery phase happening now. And I think it's important for the industry to be able to have that conversation and to be able to present the funds with what is actually available and to help them navigate through what can actually drive that operational agility for them as they start thinking about the operating model of the future.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
3: I'll pile on, consistent with everything that's just been said, but we've observed that increasingly, I believe, institutional investors, asset owners are looking to outsource functions to service providers where they can. And sometimes we provide technology directly to institutional investors, but they're often happy to have a service provider put a service wrapper around it, which is value add from their perspective, both from a operational expertise and all of the things that go with operating advanced technology. And also it allows them to Allocate their own internal resources to other things that may be more directly a part of their essential value proposition. But the other good thing that happens there, I think, is that those higher value services, by being outsourced to a service provider, by being provided by a service provider, make them available to a broader array of clients. So clients that may not have had be in a situation to take on the advanced technology themselves and operate it and therefore derive. The value that arises, if they can go to a service provider and get that service there without having to become a master of that technology, then everyone wins. They get the higher level of service without being barred from it just because they may not be at a stage in their evolution where they could take it on themselves.
0: Yeah. And so what does that mean for the small and the mid-tier funds then? So the people who can't go to their outsource providers and their service partners and and kind of dictate the roadmaps. I mean, is it a good thing that some of the super mega players are running ahead and dictating the the new operating models that they can then have recycled back into the mid-tier? Or are the mid-tier guys kind of going to lose their voice and lose their innovation in the next few years?
4: Hmm. I think that we're going to see more consolidation in our market. We already are. I know Australia has seen a lot of consolidation. I don't know that it's that they're losing their voice. They're changing their voice. So their voice can get louder. And I think that I look at it from that perspective, as opposed to losing something, they're gaining the opportunity of scale. They're gaining the opportunity of continuing to be able to provide to their plan members. They're getting the benefit a broader viewpoint and a bigger enterprise to be able to leverage, which means candidly more dollars and cents to use. So I do think we're going to continue to see consolidation where it makes sense. And we're seeing it in Ontario. We've seen it in other provinces in in Canada. I do believe that 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 is not necessarily bad because it does provide to the benefit of the plan number, right? That's who it's for. So that's my perspective.
0: Yeah. Ryan, do you see a similar thing playing out? Just to get up, you've obviously, you've got a, a broad brush, you know, coverage of, of of kind of all different sizes. I mean, do you see, a, to Christine's point, do you see the kind of the mid-tier guys kind of either consolidating or kind of feeling that they're, they're keeping their voice or do you see any frustrations coming through?
2: Yeah, so I think that the mid and smaller tier are working with you know essentially their investment consultants. So yes, there is you know some feelings some frustration with you know how are they going to continue to deliver and meet the plans needs. And then they're looking at options. It's not only just a consolidation, but even asset managers, the third party asset managers, are coming up with different uh, solutions. Right, even consolidating through OCIOS. So there are, I think, the market continues to evolve. There will be innovation, there will be new products, uh, not just on the technology side, but what technology will enable for plans to do. So I think the good thing is those smaller plans will have other options, will have options in the next five years that they didn't have 10 years ago. And then it'll be up to their committees to make the decision on what's in the best interest of their members, as Christine said. And I think everybody will go through that process in the next little while.
0: Yeah. Just a, one statistic that springs to mind from the research, Randy, was the uh, a very strong, in, in terms of the inputs into the strategic agenda, a very strong sense that in the US that people feel that, that you know they're boxed in not only by their service providers' roadmaps, but also by concentration risk. And uh, I was just curious to see whether that's a, a theme that plays out as well. That ultimately, you know, this idea, which I I think makes perfect sense, that it's about who's doing the job, not necessarily whether the job gets done. But how does that play out in a world that's fairly concentrated in terms of the software providers and the banks?
3: Yeah. So I think the points you're making is is well made. I think it plays out differently in different parts of of the market. So. In the larger end, yes, especially the larger and mid, they may be looking for different ways to get something done to achieve a certain value. And asset owners, institutional investors that have relied on service providers in the past may look to do some things for themselves or use technology to do some things for themselves that they might have looked to a service provider to do in the past. There is an interesting phenomenon going on though, where service providers are taking a much broader view of how they deliver value to their clients. And there is a much greater trend than there has been in the past to say, to build an array or a a portfolio of capabilities that may rely on technology and resources that wasn't homegrown. And to actually incorporate those into an overall service offering and then deliver those out to the market. That may in fact satisfy and and those investors that are looking in other places. They may choose to take technology on for themselves and operate it, but they may find new capabilities at some of the existing providers that capabilities and approaches that were not there before. And then again, as spoken as mentioned before, the the notion that even asset owners that aren't able to do those things for themselves may find an an expanded array of capabilities
0: service providers that are more traditional so yeah absolutely so the, essentially the concentration risk question is a little bit moot if i understand right because the providers are changing shape all the time that ultimately it's uh just because you heavily it's not like they just do payments and settlements and that you you know you've got to spread it around as they morph and evolve into into tech providers and other things the co- the whole concentration risk question has to has to shift with it,
3: and in fact, those same service providers they become agnostic about some of the things that were required before right. Right. And so you can deconcentrate by uh, right. using the the same array yep. of providers, but not for the things that you're concentrated about or worried about concentration risk
0: yeah. Absolutely. No, and I'm looking forward to digging into that. Funnily enough, that's on the list for our next podcast episode. So we'll leave everyone hanging on tender hooks with that one. But so, so far, we've talked about operational agility and, and kind of being part of a future state kind of thinking. We've talked about how that's playing into the data world and ultimately, what are these people other than data providers and data as their product? And ultimately, though, this whole question about roles and responsibilities more than work not getting done. But most of what we've talked about so far is systems. And Marin, you touched on the people element to this. One of the really striking things about the research is that before anything else, the projects that are happening are project team restructuring. So basically, asset owners, before they get new kit, before they get new toys and bells and whistles, they are restructuring their departments along asset class specializations, if you like. So first of all, does that resonate as the biggest thing that you're seeing? And second of all, do you see that that is a precursor to tech change parallel with or how do the two kind of interact?
1: Yes, it is a challenge. Um, When speaking to many of the funds here, there is a war for talent. They're trying to obviously make themselves attractive employers. I think historically, People with STEM skills or STEM backgrounds have been more attracted to investment management, analyst roles in banking, deep tech roles in large technology companies or banks. And I think it's very hard to compete in terms of the compensation and to attract that type of talent. So definitely when speaking to many of them, they're really trying to recruit very early on and also looking to differentiate themselves. For example, I know a couple of funds who are particularly interested around women who have STEM type backgrounds, who are reentering the workforce, maybe after a period out for looking after families or having children, or maybe looking after elderly parents. Um, And so they're really starting to think about targeted strategies to attract that right talent in. They're also thinking about their culture. How do they represent themselves and how do they make themselves attractive in terms of having that one mission to return back I guess, to provide good returns to mums and dads at the end of the day, including themselves. So having that that type, that mission statement that might sort of attract that talent, particularly the younger talent, is really important to them as well. I mean, there, there is a massive shortage of people in terms of studying STEM and who are able to, who who are thinking about joining a super fund. You don't graduate from university having studied those uh, disciplines, you just don't. So I think it starts right there at the universities to be able to start to advertise what they do, what they're about, the purpose, you know, and that's really going to start to attract the talent into these roles I think another thing they're thinking about is around flexibility. A lot of them are in multiple states. They're globalising. And so, starting, obviously, with the pandemic, maintaining that flexibility, being able to work remotely is going to be very important for these funds to attract the right type of talent to be able to transform the business. So, I think, yeah, people are really, really important. And I think it comes, it's hand in hand with the ability to execute, to reimagine their operating model, to understand, to pick technology that solves a problem not pick a technology and then determine how that's going to solve a certain problem I think that's going to be really really important in terms of the future of some of these funds
0: yeah absolutely and I mean Christine do you see the change in the urgency of of kind of the whole tech side because obviously they aren't entirely symbiotic but do you see because of the 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 kind of the war for talent the great resignation is that accelerating or changing the pace in any way of of the whole tech side of the change agenda
4: honestly, I think it's I think it's accelerating. It is amazing how many firms are rethinking. I like the term reimagine, Marian. They're trying to reassess who they are, what they're doing, how they're doing it. I do agree that you know, given the specialization of some of the asset classes, some of the investment types that they're working with, they are looking for people to focus on it. They're really trying to break down their business. To ensure that they've got the right people doing right jobs. And to Marion's point, it is tough. Talent finding talent is a, is a very, very challenging thing for everyone right now. I don't know where everybody's going, I'll be honest, <laughs> but I still struggle with that. It's real. So, you know, I think that that the technology or and service providers and both are really having to come to the table quickly. Uh, with good solutions, I do believe that there's there's a a focus on being able to create integration across the organization, and that the people part of this is really important. Uh, you know, Marion touched on it. Culture is a really important thing, making sure that the employees are in a good place, and and you know, supporting the employees through change, I think is also really important. If we've not learned nothing over the last two years. Uh, we've learned that it's the employees that keep it running, no matter where they are, whether they're at home, you know, whether they're, they're sitting, you know, outside of Starbucks. <laughs> I mean, it just doesn't matter, right? But the people are the ones that keep it going. So there really can't, that can't be lost either. So I think it's a combination of getting the right people, making sure it's the right technology and services, and being able to then facilitate the changes that they want to make.
0: So just to pick up on that, the the point around the huge competition for talent, at the same time, you have some very specific domains that we're talking about expanding in. I mean, ESG, new asset classes, you know, if a pension fund suddenly takes in, a, you know, participates in a syndicated loan, for example, that's a very specialised area. I mean, Randy, are you seeing kind of basically how does this how does this kind of thing play out between the kind of the specialization of of going out and hiring for people versus going and getting in these kind of new systems to be able to take care of whether it be of all the pressures esg as i said investing in guatemala syndicated loan or whatever
3: well it is of interest of of mine of ours that very space so the notion of using technology as a solution To bring all those things together, Now, comments earlier I made would suggest we're looking at fewer systems so that there are fewer linkages. Nevertheless, there needs to be some technology platform or process, I think platform, that enables all of those various specialization pieces to be brought together. Well, point of view, you need to have a a book of records. Some place where all of those pieces come together to serve the needs of the portfolio manager, and we would say that the asset allocator. But in order to be able to create that total portfolio view, you have to be able to bring in data from all those specialty asset class specialty systems. And if you're bringing in analytics on things like ESG, you need to be able to do that as well. So technology plays a role both as the reducing the number of technology components that are used, but nevertheless, the ability to, to assemble the various pieces that continue to be necessary in order to deal with all of the specialization that exists in a large institutional asset managers or asset owners office.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a fantastic place probably to round out the conversation because I think it's it brings together really nicely the the two heavy themes that we've talked about, data and people and ultimately that I really love what you're saying is technology is an enabler to both. It's not really just an enabler to uh, to better data and all the kind of stuff that ultimately is is kind of gets all the headlines. but it's also, as we've discussed, operational agility is about supporting the people as much as 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 the investment. So I think uh, you know if you pull all of that together, what is happening to the to the change agenda? you know we've we've said really that, operational agility has many facets. It manifests very, very strongly in the data world. But ultimately, there is this whole question of who's doing what, and frankly, who's doing what today and tomorrow and whether they're still going to be there. So you know, I think for me, the aim of this conversation was really to set out all of these considerations as people who are listening are starting to set out their own kind of change agendas. And so it's been brilliant to be able to walk through that. And in the next episode, we'll aim to, to really then talk about the actual the execution of projects, who's around the table, which we've kind of started on, but ultimately roles and responsibilities around the table, which projects and what kind of subconscious biases we may or may not be applying to our choices of projects. So I hope that's a decent wrap up of, of what we've covered off, but really thank you very, very much for all of your brilliant inputs as always, and uh, looking forward to speaking on the next episode very shortly. Thanks
4: very much. Thank you.